then we can quite simply calculate how much sweating I need to achieve heat balance. And you can end up actually predicting quite a lot of the individual variability that you thought was pretty random in the first place. But when you take into account these physical factors, you end up describing around, around about 80 to 90% of the individual variability. and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm your host, Steph Gaskell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? I'm good, thanks, Steph. Well into January now, uh, just enjoying the summer and the last of the school holidays before the kiddies go back to school. And then we have the big party when the kiddies go back to school because my youngest will be <laughs> at school this year. Um, so, Ooh. yeah, yeah, exactly right. So, and particularly after last year and, and school's been closed for most of the year. So, yeah, very much looking forward to that, but enjoying the summer holidays while it's here and, and while, we, while we can do stuff and get out of the house. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, so here at The Long Munch, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. So it's the stuff you talk about around the coffee table um, with your training buddies. And what we are here to do and would like to do is break it down into, um, you know, a bit more, I guess, easy to understand and, and practical uh, advice. And this is where we invite a guest expert or athlete to add their perspective on the question that we're answering. Before we crack into the episode um it really looks like you've got something to get off your chest oh you know me too well steph yeah this is uh one of those things that is is funny and never ceases to astound me and and i think once you explain it people are like oh of course that makes you know perfect sense but you know so many people out there when they think about hydration and they because that's our topic today and, and think about sweating and, and sweat rates and how much do i sweat and you know measuring that and then having some sort of action plan or strategy around that and we talked obviously in the the previous episode 3a with with dr lewis james about whether you should you know have a prescriptive approach to this or plan your fluid versus you know kind of ad-libbing it a bit or, or you know drinking to thirst um we talked in that episode about this that the fact that you know people just uh often go out there and they do a sweat test on a single day in you know whatever conditions happen to be on that day because that's the day i've scheduled my sweat test and then they yep. go my number is 600 mils an hour therefore i'm a 600 mil an hour sweater and i will always yep. replace 600 mils an hour and yep. We talked about this with Lewis. We're going to talk about even more about this with um, with our guest today. Is yep. the fact that your sweat rate changes so much from session to session, day to day. Where you know, if you're a triathlete, running versus cycling changes things. Whether you're doing a you know interval session versus a recovery ride or run changes things. Whether you're doing it at seven o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the afternoon changes things. There is so much variability in all of that. That just going out there and doing a one-off test and saying this is my sweat rate, this is how much I need to drink, is just complete rubbish, and it's probably going to get you into more trouble than it is actually going to be helpful. It's probably doing yourself a disservice rather than um, assisting you with your your hydration planning and your hydration strategy. So if you need to uh, figure out how much you are sweating, you need to do it across multiple days in multiple conditions, multiple times of day. Um, not the, the time of day 
does affect your sweat rate, but more just the fact that, you know, the weather conditions will be different at different times of the mm. day. In order to work out, you know, what your likely sweat rates will be in different conditions for different types of exercise at different intensities. Uh, and once you've sort of built that, you know, bigger picture of things, then you have this, uh, a bit of an idea of, you know, how much you would expect to lose sweat-wise in, in different race scenarios and, and can plan accordingly for it. But yeah, that, that one-off sweat test is is probably worse than useless to be honest jeez you look so much happier (laughs) (laughs) got that one off my chest (laughs) you did you had that one on your chest for a while yeah i've been hanging on to that for a while steph (laughs) now we've got this podcast i can air my grievances yeah i think you got the message out there loud and clear so um yeah good one yep So, Alan, it's episode 4A today, and the topic that we're, or the question we're answering today is, why do I sweat so much more than that other person? Uh, Who do we have answering this question? Yeah, Associate Professor Ollie Jay from the University of Sydney. Ollie, you know, we've we've worked with, with him before, collaborated with him on a um, paper, the Sports Dietitians Australia Position Statement on uh, Nutrition mm-hmm. for Exercise in Hot Environments, which is a, a bit of a mouthful, uh, but it's basically a, yeah. a consensus paper that brings together all the knowledge around nutrition for hot environments. Uh, and Ollie is a, a thermal physiologist at the University of Sydney. He's the director of the Thermal Ergonomics Lab um, at the University of Sydney, and, and in this interview, we we ask him a little bit about what that is and, and what he does as a thermal physiologist, and how that's different from other areas of physiology. But um, he's done some really interesting research in this area, um, and I think it's for me this is one of those big sort of black box mysteries within the industry of you know why does this person sweat so much more than me or less than me mm. or whatever it is, um, you know. Mm sports drink companies talk up the fact that you know there's huge variation in you know sweat rates between people um but no one ever explains why like why is this Mm. variation there and and people kind of just say oh there's genetics it's like well that's Mm -hmm. probably a bit of a cop-out well it might be a cop-out we'll ask ollie um Mm -hmm. you know why is there this variation from from person to person and ollie's done some great research that um helps answer this question um and so he's he's been really uh generous with his time and and great at explaining this Mm -hmm. to us in terms of why is it that sweat rates vary from person to person what are the factors that that go into it is it just simply genetic difference like a lot of people kind of say uh or is there uh you know to a degree a a simpler sort of physiological explanation for it so yeah we'll, we'll find out about that we'll find out about why sweat rates are different from person to person but also within the same person so for for you as the runner or the triathlete or whoever you are um you know you go out today you go out tomorrow you go out the next day and your sweat rate varies what are the things that will affect your sweat rate going up or down or, or staying the same so um yeah he did a great job i think of explaining all of this uh, really enjoyed this mm-hmm. discussion with ollie yeah 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 he um i think he just um explains it nice and simply as well um because i mean if you read the papers like i attempted to read some of the papers um i definitely asked him to dumb it down for myself they get pretty technical um, yeah yeah, and he, he, he does do a nice job um, of that. So, mm. yeah, looking forward to listening to Ollie. Yeah, let's do it. Ollie Jay, welcome to the Long Munch. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, Alan, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. Obviously, uh, we're recording this in 2020. Uh, people will be listening to it in 2021. But um, 
2020 has been a, a big year for you, maybe not for, for some people, but you've had a, a new lab built, which probably by the time people are listening to this, you'll be in there and, and working. And uh, new new child as well, daughter born uh, about eight months ago. So yeah, big 2020 for you. That's right. Yeah, it's not. Uh, I've certainly had a um, probably a better twenty twenty than most people. I think <laughs> it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. Um, and certainly looking forward to seeing some pictures from the from the new lab. I mean, I've seen the outside of the building looks amazing. Yeah. I'm assuming you don't get the whole building though. It's pretty big. Yeah, no, no, we don't get the whole building. We've uh, we're on the ninth floor of the new Susan Wakel Health Building, um, which is on main campus at the University of Sydney. Um, we actually had the uh, an ABC crew come 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 round and uh, and shoot a. Um, uh, a, 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 I guess I, I don't know what you would call it. Um, a little documentary, a, an, an interview, or something like that. Yeah. So uh, it's 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 quite nice. Um, I think that'll be aired in in early January. So yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Awesome. And um, do you get new toys along with the new building, or is it just a new building and you got to take all your old toys with you? Lab, lab well, the main feature of the of the new building is a new chamber, which is uh, we're very grateful to have. So this chamber will have the capacity to simulate any kind of environmental condition uh, that we have meteorological uh, records for. So we can simulate all sorts of heat waves, um, peak environmental conditions from around the world uh, in terms of humidity, uh, temperature, of course. And also we can simulate solar radiation as well and wind. Mm. So uh, the four environmental parameters that determine how hot somebody will get we can um, we can recreate all of those all of those types of um, conditions. Another thing that we're actually quite excited about is that we're starting to work with um, climate scientists. So what they can do is actually look at the way in which uh, heat waves of the future are going to change uh, as a function of different uh, climate change scenarios, and then we can recreate those or create those conditions in advance and demonstrate what impact that will have on the human body, the ability to um, perform different types of occupational um, activities, but also uh, play sport as well. So it'll really give us a, a, a window into the future to understand how different climate change scenarios will impact human health and well-being. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. And is that fairly unique in terms of that the setup to be able to do all of those things? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, certainly uh, the capacity that we've that we've got within the chamber is, to, to the best of my knowledge, um, certainly unparalleled in Australia, but I think uh, unparalleled in most places around the world. Um, we have the capacity to go to very high temperatures and have very high humidity, but we've also got very careful control over those particular parameters as well, which is um, something that's really important for some of the protocols that we run. So um, I probably won't go into too much detail here because it's quite a niche, but uh, we do things like humidity ramp protocols where you need to have very, very tight control over humidity as you increase it in a graded fashion to try to identify certain um, thresholds for environmental limits that people are exposed to. So um, that will be um, very feasible with this new this new chamber. Yeah, wow. Okay. Well, that's probably a, a nice segue into sort of our, our first few questions. So Steph, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, yep. Um, so Ollie, you're a thermal physiologist um, and sure. probably not many of the of athletes in general have um, come across thermal physiologists. They're probably more well-versed in working with exercise scientists. Um, so what's what's the kind of difference between a thermal physiologist, exercise physiologist um, mm. in terms of the research that you do in hot and cold environments? Yeah, so um, that's, a, that's a good question, Steph. Um, so, I mean, uh, we are usually exercise physiologists as well, okay. but specialising in thermal physiology. So thermal physiology is really 
understanding the way in which the human body thermoregulates, so maintains body temperature within safe limits. And when we go outside of those safe limits, obviously it threatens human health. But before you kind of get into that area, um, it can also um, in, impact performance um, and the, the capacity to uh, perform optimally uh, in a particular environment. So it's trying to understand what those impacts are and better prepare people for exposure to those to those conditions, both physiologically and also cognitively as well. Um, so I would say that thermal physiologists and exercise physiologists are, are, have a lot in common, mm -hmm. um, but we really kind of specialize on the, the body temperature um, aspect of things. We also do uh, heat exposure research that doesn't involve exercise. So that's also a fundamental difference between an exercise physio physiologist and a thermal physiologist. So we do a lot of work looking at um, uh, heat waves and heat wave survival. Um, particularly among the most vulnerable in society, which are typically uh, older adults or people with other co types of comorbidities uh, or on different types of prescription medication. And these people will typically be kind of stranded at home in their house without air conditioning. And obviously they're not necessarily physically active, but they're still very vulnerable to the ill effects of extreme heat. So we also look at that aspect of things as well. Yeah, yeah cool. Do you feel like, uh, and this is just sort of my impression coming in and doing a PhD, kind of related in this this field you know starting about four or five years ago but it really struck me when i started meeting people in the thermal physiology space that they almost felt like there was this bit of a disconnect like the exercise physiologists were kind of doing this stuff over here and, and had heat you know sometimes involved and then the thermal physiologists were over here kind of doing stuff but they didn't really seem to to cross over very much and it does feel like that's starting to change a little bit but did you do you feel like there has been that kind of disconnect that you know one group's doing one lot of stuff here one lot's doing another stuff here and they're not really meeting in the middle yeah i mean i think um well i'll probably yeah, answer that in a couple of different ways so probably from a sports perspective um there's a lot of you know excellent sports scientists, particularly in Australia, and um, but I think very few of them specialize in in human thermoregulation, um, and so a lot of people have done studies related to thermoregulation, but perhaps without a specific expertise in it. So um, and that kind of sometimes limits the the, the depth which one can go into. Um, so what's really exciting for us is as specialists in human thermoregulation, we can we can collaborate with the, all these different types of groups to try to, to, to add value to the projects that they're doing. Um, one of the things that we're experienced from the perspective of the public health work that we do, uh, there's a completely different section of researchers who are in epidemiology, who do, do a lot of work around heat and health. And um, there's been a quite a significant disconnect between that group and uh, people like ourselves who focus on understanding the way in which humans interact with their thermal environment, how it subsequently impacts their physiology and uh, their health and well-being ultimately. And um, that's been a, a much more difficult kind of bridge uh, or gap to bridge. And that's something that we're having some success with now, um, but um, is again, you know, re really kind of challenging. Um, trying to get people to uh, understand there are different levels of expertise or different um, focuses of expertise. And then 
trying to make sure that we can all respect that and figure out ways in which we can work together. I think it's a really, really important consideration moving forward if we're trying to look at um, developing comprehensive solutions for some of these really complex problems that we find ourselves facing as we move into the future, particularly in, in the, against the background of future climate change. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, today's topic is around this concept of, you know, why do I sweat so much more than the next person? Um, because, you know, you often see that and athletes often talk about that, you know, oh, I'm sweating like a pig here and this person, which is ironic because pigs don't really sweat. Um, and, and you know, over here, this person's hardly sweating at all and, you know, what what's going on here? And, um, you know, often, you know, scientists, sports drink companies, athletes and coaches sort of promote this message and talk about the fact that sweat rates do vary so much from one person to the next, which, you know, they clearly do. Um, but, but people really struggle to explain why this difference occurs um mm -hmm. and sometimes people throw away you know that kind of line oh there's, there's genetic variation and that's the reason why you know this person's sweating double what this person is or whatever um mm -hmm. which i think you can probably explain to us today is is not necessarily true and actually there is a a very um clear sort of physiological explanation for this variance in sweat rate from one person to the next. And, you know, you've done some of the research on this topic, you know, going back, um, I remember reading papers from 2013 and possibly there's ones earlier that I haven't seen. Um, so can you just give us a quick overview of how the body decides like how much sweat it's going to produce? And, and obviously that impacts on, on what your sweat rate is that you potentially are measuring. Sure. I, I could try. So, um, yeah, so, uh, Basically, it's trying to um, uh, think about uh, the way in which the human body obeys fundamental scientific laws, um, uh, particularly with respect to physics. So um, there is this, um, this principle called the human heat balance principle. And what this basically uh, states is that the amount of heat that you generate internally from metabolism, so a lot of, you know, we consume oxygen, um, uh, to, to, to then uh, utilize um, or generate ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is the fuel that the body uses for contraction muscles, so on and so forth. But we're very, very inefficient at that process, and we generate an awful lot of heat for the amount of oxygen that we consume. And in fact, uh, when we're running on a flat surface, the ultimate fate of all of our energy is actually waste heat. So that's something to keep in mind. So we're generating a lot of heat inside the body, and the human heat balance principle state that in order to maintain a fixed body temperature, which is the ultimate goal of the human thermoregulatory system, is that we have to balance that heat production with heat dissipation to the surrounding environment. So if I know, for example, if we think about heat generation in terms of watts, um, if I'm exercising with a rate of oxygen consumption, let's say 1.5 liters per minute, that would probably generate a rate of heat production of around about 600 watts. And what that means is if I'm generating 600 watts, I've got to lose heat at the skin surface at the same rate to maintain heat balance. So I need to lose heat at a rate of 600 watts. Now there's different ways in which you can lose heat to the environment. You can do them predominantly through either dry heat transfer, which is a process called convection and radiation. And then there's the evaporation of sweat. Um, now, when we're exposed to a hot environment, there's not a great deal of dry heat transfer going on because the difference between the temperature of the air and the skin is pretty small. So we can almost consider that as being almost negligible. So that means that the primary driver for how much sweat we have to produce is the rate of metabolic heat production. So we produce sweat in quite large quantities or can have the capacity to generate in large quantities. 
And for the evaporation of every gram of sweat, we lose a certain amount of heat. So then basically you can say that if I'm generating 600 watts of heat, I need to lose um, heat via evaporation from the skin of 600 watts. Then I can back calculate how much sweat I need to produce to have 600 watts of evaporative heat loss. So you use that using something called the latent heat vaporization of sweat. Um, and you basically back calculate how much sweating you need to achieve heat balance. Now, when you do that, you can take into account what the activity the person is doing. Um, that is influenced by their exercise intensity, of course, but also the economy of movement, any type of activity that they're, whether it's weight bearing or whether it's, it's um, you know, on a bike, for example, uh, we can take into account the influence of environmental parameters on dry heat loss, such as air temperature, wind velocity, things like that. And then we can quite simply calculate how much sweating I need to achieve heat balance. And when you do that, you account for all this individual variability in mass, in heat production, in oxygen consumption, uh, environmental parameters. And you can end up actually predicting quite a lot of the individual variability that you thought was pretty random in the first place. But when you take into account these physical factors, you end up describing around, around about 80 to 90% of the individual variability. So now that remaining kind of 10 or 15% of variability is, is now ascribed to these other kind of factors. But beforehand, we wanted to ascribe all of the variability to that. And um, uh, what we've found, we've done a series of studies that have kind of shown that these principles hold true irrespective of a bunch of different things. So we've just published a paper looking at uh, the circadian rhythm. So this idea of, uh, you know, if I exercise in the morning at a fixed metabolic heat production, and then I do exactly the same thing in the afternoon, do I sweat more or less of the same? We show that you sweat exactly the same because the principles of heat balance remain true irrespective of all these different things that we previously thought modulated how much we sweat. But in fact, that's not actually true. Physics is physics. Physics is physics. And, um, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. I remember uh, one, of my, one of my first PhD students, a guy called Matt Kramer, uh, who now works for um, the, the, um, the Canadian Defence in Toronto. And uh, he was doing his data collection for one of his first studies, which we published in 2014. And he had a guy who was doing his PhD in the physics department come down and participate in our study. And he was saying, okay, so, you know, what's the point of the, the, the experiment that you're doing? And he explains what I've just explained to you. And, you know, the guy from the physics department thought it was astonishing that we needed to actually do a study to demonstrate the physics of physics. <laughs> apparently do. So uh, maybe that's a good thing for us. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> give, give you something to do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cool. And so, I mean, obviously you talked about sort of around 2013, 2014, you guys were doing this research, but was this yeah. something that was like other people had already done prior to this? Is it like, is this something, yeah. a new concept or has this been around for a while? You know, this concept's been around for a very long time. There's been some classic literature, you know, back in the 1950s, 1960s, um, that have looked at this and effectively shown this to be the case. But we kind of lost our way um, uh, because of um, certain pieces of conventional wisdom that started to kind of make their way into the um, into the field. This idea of relative intensity. So if I'm exercising at a, a particular you know, percentage of my VO2 max, that is more important for sweating and body temperature than than my absolute metabolic heat production, for example. Um, and there's all sorts of reasons why that kind of got a foothold, um, mainly through the, the, the kind of uh, misinterpretation of data further down the line. The authors of these original pieces of work never actually um, made conclusions that 
really justified the way in which it was uh, um, interpreted further down the line. But then it kind of took a life of its own. And and then we kind of found ourselves in the early 2000s kind of looking at things from a heat balance point of view and, and saying, okay, well, maybe we need to kind of re-demonstrate these proof, the, the, these these principles um, to, to, to with, with, with contemporary uh, methods to show that, in fact, we can actually describe quite a lot of the variability in things like sweating and, and core temperature. So core temperature is a, a different thing, uh, but we've kind of done a, a, a similar thing from that perspective as well. Yeah. Okay. And just, just on what you're saying before, like you're talking about the concept of metabolic heat production, you're talking about sort of 600 watts. So we're not talking about like some Tour de France cyclist riding at 600 watts, because as you said, the majority of energy um, is being produced as heat. And so, you know, with cycling, it's, it's fairly predictable that roughly around 20% of the the energy ends up through the pedals and you can measure that with a power meter or something like that and the remaining 80 percent is, is the heat produced of the 600 watts is the total of that not just the 20 percent that you measure on your power meter so the actual output from a cycling perspective is significantly less than that obviously for for running though it's probably a little bit more variable because you've got running economies that vary a bit more than it does on a bike that's exactly right yeah so that's an, a really important point and that's a, a, a um so we're used to talking about rates of metabolic heat production when we're talking to athletes, particularly cyclists, and they, whenever they hear the word watts, they think of power output. So probably, you know, as, as you as you said, Alan, is that if you want to simply convert that power output to a rate of metabolic heat production, you could probably multiply it by four, three or four, depending on the, the mechanical efficiency. So what we see on exercise bikes in the lab is that they have a mechanical efficiency around about 80 to 20% which means that 20% of the metabolic energy expenditure goes into performing external work and the remaining 80% is liberated as uh, metabolic heat. Whereas I think what we see on the more advanced uh, bikes, um, to uh, racing bikes, is that that mechanical efficiency is maybe closer to 25%, which case 25% is going to do external work and 75%. So the ratio of that is, is obviously you know three to one. So um, that's probably the best way of doing it. When it comes to running, of course, that's um, very different indeed. So um, you have the variability of running economy, which is massively different. So what we see on bikes is that people's mechanical efficiency is actually pretty similar. It's not really influenced too much by by fitness, by by anything really, just really biomechanics. Um, but when it comes to running, the variability that we see between different individuals and in running economy is enormous. So, uh, and we see that the way in which people run differently, and um, uh, you know that that so that that is a, a big consideration. Another important distinction between running and cycling is, of course, is that when you're running, it's a weight bearing exercise, so you're carrying all that mass. So, you could be running with the same running economy um, on the same surface, um, the same speed. And if you have different body masses, then the rates of metabolic heat production are going to be quite different um, in, in an absolute sense. Um, so because you're carrying more weight, you've got to expend more oxygen from an absolute perspective to carry that extra weight. And therefore, your metabolic heat production from an absolute perspective will be greater. And therefore, the amount of evaporation that you need to balance that metabolic heat production will also be greater. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So obviously in cycling, um, that's going to be fairly straightforward. You can just look at someone's power output, you know, calculate forward to work out sort of the heat production, and then you can sort of stick that into um, some sort of equation, I suspect. You, you know, you could get to the stage of being able to predict with you know, a reasonable um, 
sense of accuracy, what someone's likely sweat rate will be under particular conditions. Uh, I'm guessing that's something that you guys can can do pretty comfortably in thermal physiology land. Yeah, I mean, so one of the um, the big uh, uh, challenges is that so that 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 balance is 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 that the principle is true, and it remains true no matter what. But there's another factor that comes in that makes it a bit more complicated. And it's this, this notion of sweating efficiency or evaporative efficiency. So the the only way in which we the sweat cools us down is by evaporating. But by you know many of your listeners will be familiar, and we're all familiar with this notion of sweat dripping off our body. And when that sweat is secreted but drips off the body, it doesn't evaporate from the skin. It doesn't contribute to the cooling of the body. So um, if as as I as more and more sweat drips off the body, I have to sweat more to achieve a given amount of evaporation, and that um, that sweating efficiency drops off a cliff pretty quickly. Um, as our so there's this. Um, uh, this concept called skin wettedness that was developed by Gaggy in, uh, you know, in, in, in the last century, and this is basically, in a simple way, is the proportion of the total body surface area that is saturated with sweat. And as we get to around about fifty percent saturation, we start seeing a reduction in our sweating efficiency. So we go from nearly all of the sweat that we secrete evaporating to a proportion dripping off the skin and only a certain proportion evaporating. And as your if you as you become as you start sweating more profusely, that evaporative efficiency kind of declines quite rapidly. So you need to understand that part of the equation as well to ultimately predict how much you're going to sweat and ultimately how much you need to drink to, to replace those. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like, uh, well, there's obviously a, a very um, simple in some ways, complex in others, I guess, sort of uh, physiological explanation for the sweat rate. It's not going to be that someone at home can just pull out a calculator and, and predict their sweat rate by plugging in, you know, what my speed or my power output's going to be today, what the wind speed is and the temperature. It's going to be more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you can you can come up with with algorithm algorithms that enable us to do that. It's just um, it's just all of the the complexities that are kind of in the background of it. But really, you know, uh, effectively, they all kind of obey for the most part biophysical um, principles. And uh, as long as we're familiar with them and, and can and can use them in the right way, then we can come up with different you know reasonable um, uh, reasonably accurate estimations of 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 sweat rates. Yep. Yep. Sounds sounds fair enough. Okay. Um, now, one of the things that you always hear, and this is not just in, in running, cycling, and triathlon where we're focused, but really across all sports, um, is you often hear athletes go, oh, that guy must be so much fitter than me because when we finish exercising, like, oh, I'm just completely soaked. I'm absolutely saturated. And that guy's barely raised a sweat. Like that must mean it's a, it's a mark of fitness. But clearly from what you're saying here, that's very much a myth, although there could, could be you know, factors in there like efficiency, as you said, um, but but generally speaking, that's going to clearly be a myth. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. Um, so you, you maybe we'll try to unpack that a little bit. So there's a few reasons why somebody would be sweating a lot more than another person. So uh, so there's two main reasons. Number one, the person who's sweating more is going to be generating more heat, and the reason they'll be generating more heat is potentially because they're heavier. Um, it could be because they're less efficient at that mm. at that um, at that movement. Uh, the other thing is the evaporative efficiency. So the efficiency with which that sweat is evaporating from the skin. So one of the main uh, reasons for that could be um, airflow, so self-generated airflow. So um, if you're running slower, so if you're heavier and then you're still generating quite a lot of heat, 
but you're running slower, then that self-generated air velocity across the skin is going to be slower. And therefore, the drive for evaporation is going to be lower. And therefore, your evaporative efficiency will go down. Mm. And therefore, you have to sweat more in order to achieve the same evaporation. So uh, there's those types of things. Those are the two main reasons why you would expect somebody to be sweating more than the other person, either generating more heat and or there's differences in the evaporative efficiency. Um, And there's lots of different things that kind of go into evaporative efficiency. We're trying to get a, a handle of that. You know, one of the things that we're looking at right now is, is this idea of body hair. So if you're really, really hairy, does that kind of serve as a bit of a barrier to the evaporation of that sweat? And therefore, does it um, does it serve as a bit of a barrier or does it does it, does it serve as a, as a reason for why you're less efficient at evaporating sweat? Um, so that's one thing that we're looking at. There's things like surface area to mass ratio is probably pretty important. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of individual variability in that evaporative efficiency um, uh, side of things just with respect to sweat gland density so uh, you know we have high density of sweat glands on places like the forehead for example and that's why it will saturate really quickly and then you'll start dripping off some body parts before others so um, we don't really have a good handle on the amount of individual variability of of um, well there's a bit of, of, of literature out there in terms of individual variability of sweat gland density but how that translates to individual variability in sweating efficiency we don't quite understand just yet so there's a whole bunch of cyclists out there waiting for this volley because they want to know if this is another reason for shaving their legs or not <laughs> yeah right yeah, yeah well i mean i think that yeah uh it would it, it's only going to go one way right so uh um we can maybe anticipate what those findings are mm. and, and maybe uh, the less hair the better but i'm going to say that because i don't have much hair <laughs> fair <laughs> enough um all right so We've talked about sort of this this heat balance equation, and you've mentioned some of the factors that will influence that in terms of body size. So a bigger person will have to generate more heat, therefore they'll sweat more. Um, presumably, you know, how fast you or how hard you're working as well, that kind of thing. And then obviously, you know. Sorry, I'll, I'll just I'll just clarify one statement that you made there. Yeah. So um, if you're bigger, you'll make you'll produce more heat if it's a weight bearing exercise. Yeah. So one thing that people often uh, misinterpret is that if you're on a cyclogometer, for example, and if you're 100 kilograms versus 60 kilograms, but you're all you're both generating 100 watts of external work in the bike, your absolute oxygen consumption will be the same. Mm. And your absolute uh, evaporative requirement for heat balance will be the same. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of an important thing just to to, to, to keep in mind. Yeah, well, I guess a, a cyclist like outdoors, uh, the bigger one might be able to generate more power and therefore more heat because of that. For sure, yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Okay, so there, there's those sorts of factors. A couple that we haven't really touched on yet, um, biological sex, so males versus females. Is there any difference there that is specifically due to biological sex as opposed to body yeah. size or power output or anything like that? Yeah, this is, yeah these, are, these are all great questions, Alan. Um, yeah, so again, a, a really common thing that we come across is, you know, uh, sex differences. Um, there's been qu- quite a lot of laboratory studies that have been performed over the past few decades that have attempted to identify the independent influence of biological sex on sweat rate, um, but um, have kind of, as it turns out, failed to do so um, because of these differences in the rates of metabolic heat production. There's a study, uh, um, uh, an article that published in Experimental Physiology in 2014, which is a, a kind of a... Um, Bit of an opinion piece around that and trying to explain how you know how unraveling factors like um sex and fitness is actually really quite difficult 
Um, but uh, so the, the main thing is that what we know is that at sub-maximal sweat rates, um, uh, so in something we call compensable heat stress conditions, so this is a, a, a situation where uh, we are able to achieve heat balance. Um, what we know is that for the most part, men and women are pretty much the same in terms of, um, you know, if you have a sub-maximal sub rate of metabolic heat production, that can be balanced by sweat evaporative evaporation of sweat. We find that females are just as good at doing that as males. Now, what, what, we, what we have seen to see in the literature, and this needs further verification, but quite recently, there's been a couple of studies published that have shown that the maximum rate of evaporation that's possible in females is slightly lower than males. So that upper ceiling for evaporation is, is, is lower. And that's been ascribed to um, uh, not necessarily differences in sweat gland density, but the capacity for each individual sweat gland, gland to generate sweat. So the maximum sweat output per sweat gland is a little lower in females. And the, the, these couple of studies that have been published seem to find a, a, an association between that and this slightly lower upper maximum sweat rate. So all this to say is that at, at the kind of at lower sweat rates, men and women are pretty much the same if we account for the amount of heat that they're producing. Um, when we look at very high rates of metabolic heat production, then what we'll find is that women will, will sweat at a slightly lower rate, will have slightly lower rates of, of evaporation, and therefore they might heat up quicker at these, at these much higher rates of metabolic heat production. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of the variants that you may see um, in like endurance type sports may be more simply body size uh, and possibly power output. Obviously, you know, it's obviously to be generalization to say, you yep. know, females weigh less than males. I mean, a lot do, but not everyone will. Um, and same with, with power output, but that's probably the, the majority of the reason for the differences that you see. There. That's right. Yeah. So, so a lot of the studies that we've published um, have to, in order to uh, try to understand the independent roles of things like fatness, fitness, um, sex, uh, and so on and so forth. What we've done is that we've actually taken, so that the, a, a good example is the, the study that we did on body fat. So we wanted to know whether body fatness has an independent influence on, on how hot we get, but also how much we have to sweat at a given rate of metabolic heat production. And the way in which we did that was actually we, we painstakingly recruited people of the same body mass and different fat masses. Mm. So that was really, really difficult. It was a study that we did uh, uh, seven or eight years ago um, where we had, you know, we, we recruit people in pairs. So for example, the first pair, both were 94.7 kilograms in body mass. But one person had a body fat of 7%. And one person had a, the other person had a body fat percentage of 38%. Mm. And what you do then is get those people the same mass, exercising at the same heat production. So the biophysical requirements are all the same. And any difference that you subsequently see then can be attributed to body fat. Um, and we've done that with sex, or actually our colleagues have done that with sex. Uh, we've done it with running economy and fitness. Um, we've done it with uh, time of the day. Uh, we've got a study that we've done it with caffeine as well, which we're just about to submit for for, for, for peer review, trying to understand which of these factors do and do not matter. Um, that's helpful for athletes. It's also helpful for scientists as well when scientists are trying to design experiments to try to find what the independent influence of, of independent variable X is 
to design that experiment, they need to know, you know, do I need to account for time of day? Do I need to stop people from ingesting caffeine for 24 or 48 hours beforehand? Can I do a, a mix of males and females? Uh, do I need to worry about how fit people are, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so we've kind of tried to uh, do a series of studies that ultimately provide that information in, in, in one kind of um, one go. Yeah. Okay. And the, the answer to the body fatness was? Ah, okay. So, <laughs> so the body fatness. So, if if the if your body if your body uh, mass is the same, in terms of sweating, it makes no difference whatsoever. Mm. Okay. Um, it makes slight difference to how hot you get. Mm -hmm. So, if you have a higher body fat, now we had an average of over twenty percent difference in of body fat percentage. Total of the percentage of total body mass. So the mean, I think, of the lean group was twelve percent, and the mean of the high adiposity group was thirty-two percent. And we found that between those two groups, uh, the the high adiposity group got a little hotter, okay. but they didn't sweat more. Um, we 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 attribute that difference in how hot they got to the specific heat capacity of fat tissue. So um, this is how much heat energy needs to go into a kilogram of that tissue to raise its temperature by one degree mm -hmm. so just to just remind everybody what specific heat capacity is mm. and what we know is in muscle has a higher specific heat capacity than body fat yep. therefore the um, if you store the same amount of heat inside of those tissues the, the temperature of the body fat tissue will be higher now what people want to whenever i talk to people about body fat they always talk oh it's an insulator right? it's going to make you hotter we didn't find that at all because it, um body fat works really well as an insulator because it sits on the outside of the, the vast majority of, well, at least subcutaneous fat anyway, sits basically on the outer body shell. And that's really effective in the cold because we vasoconstrict. That means we redivert um, hot blood away from the skin surface towards the body core to preserve body temperature. And when you reduce the, um, th that blood flow, it basically leaves that body fat tissue on the outer part of the body. So it serves really effectively as, a, as an insulator. Mm -hmm. But when you get hot, you'd have the opposite. You vasodilate and you perfuse the skin, which is above the body fat with high levels of, 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 of blood flow. And that basically renders that, that insulation pretty negligible. And um, so then you end up actually being able to maintain body temperature pretty effectively despite having the subcutaneous fat. The only issue is that the, the, the heat capacity is, mm -hmm. is a bit of a challenge, but it's not, it's not, a, it's not a huge deal. Of course, Steph, that the, the, the main challenge with people who have higher body fat is typically they are heavier. Mm. So if they are heavier overall and they are participating in a, a weight, weight bearing exercise, then their heat production will be higher and therefore their sweat rate will be higher. Mm -hmm. People might look at that and go, oh, that person's sweating more because they're carrying more fat. Mm. It's not necessary. It's, it's true, but it's not true. Yeah. It's, they're sweating more because they're carrying more weight. Right. Yeah. No matter what that weight's made up of. So yeah. if you had a bodybuilder yeah. or somebody who's who's um, uh, has a high mm. body adiposity and they're the same mass and their their mechanical efficiency is the same, their sweat rate should be the same. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Cool. Um, final question before I hand it over to Steph. Um, we often talk about the effect of heat acclimation or acclimatization. So that's this process whereby yeah, as we're just coming to summer here in Australia, as people exercise more in that hot environment, their their body adapts um, in, in various ways that helps us deal with that heat better. And one of those is that we tend to sweat earlier 
uh, and possibly sweat more. Uh, I'm interested in this, this heat balance equation. So when we acclimatize or, or adapt to the heat, are we actually changing that equation? Um, how is that working? How is that changing? Yeah. Like how does our sweat rate go up when it's not necessarily changing those fundamentals of physics? So oh, you're spot on there, Alan. Yeah, so it doesn't it doesn't change it. So um, we, we published a, a paper in Journal of Applied Physiology uh, will be 2019, so it won't be last year when, when people listen to this, it'll be 2019. Um, and we wanted to try to answer this question. So we looked at acclimation. So uh, first of all, which was quickly distinguished between acclimation and acclimatization. So acclimatization is when you naturally adapt to a, a free living hot environment. So let's say, uh, so that could happen, even though there's limited evidence of that happening throughout the year. So in the summer, it gets hot in Australia, you're more exposed theoretically to this, this hot climate, therefore your body will progressively adapt to that. Um, acclimation is where you work with somebody like ourselves, where you say, okay, I'm gonna go to this hot environment in three weeks to perform. So I'm gonna go play in a rugby tournament or a football tournament, and uh, I wanna be maximally physiologically adapted because it's gonna be in a hot environment. They can work with us to come into a climate chamber and we repeatedly expose them to a hot environment that is simulated in that in that chamber repeatedly over a course of a few days and then they'll physiologically adapt that way and that's acclimation so irrespective of whether it's acclimatization or acclimation the, the principles of human heat balance remain exactly the same so if i'm generating 600 watts of heat and i need to lose 600 watts of heat and the only way i can do that is through the evaporation of sweat then i will only sweat enough to achieve that rate of evaporation that's needed um, it wouldn't make sense to sweat more than that because if you did it would be a waste um, because you don't need it so what we showed is that in these environments where it's compensable which means that the amount of evaporation that you need for heat balance is actually possible physiologically and biophysically in terms of the climate then uh, you just whether you're unacclimated or heat acclimated the amount that you sweat is pretty much the same there's a slight difference between acclimated and non-acclimated, but it's so small that it doesn't matter. Now, if you go into what's called an uncompensable environment, which means that you have, oh, you, you are, your rate of heat production exceeds the maximum rate of evaporation that's possible, which is typically limited by your physiology, what we find is that that's when heat acclimation really kicks in and provides a massive benefit. Because what heat acclimation does primarily is that lifts that ceiling the maximum rate of sweating and the maximum rate of evaporation that's possible becomes much greater when you're heat acclimated or heat acclimatized relative to unacclimated. So when you're exposed to these very hot and humid environments or very hot environments coupled with very high rates of metabolic heat production, then you see these huge benefits of heat acclimation in these particular circumstances. And that's from a thermal perspective. There's also huge cardiovascular benefits of heat acclimation as well, irrespective of whether it's a compensable or uncompensable environment, which is also very important when it comes to things like sports performance in any kind of um, environment. You have the expansion of plasma volume, et cetera, the cardiovascular load goes down, uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, so it sounds like what it's doing is essentially uh, raising the bar where you're gonna tip from that compensable into uncompensable? That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. So um, what we, we did, we did the study that was published in Medicine, Science, Sports and Exercise in 2018, <clears throat> where we actually try to clarify this in terms of this, this notion of maximum skin wetness, which I mentioned a little earlier on. So just to remind everybody what that is, that's the percentage of total body surface area that you can saturate with sweat 
with maximum sweating. And what we find is that that is, uh, I've got to get the numbers right, I think it's 74, 72% when you're unacclimated, 84% when you're trained but not heat acclimated. And when you're trained and heat acclimated, it's 95, 96%. So that's the kind of difference that you see in that ability to saturate the skin uh, with sweat. Um, yep, cool. Yeah, cool. All right, I've been holding the microphone a bit, so I'm going to hand over to Steph. <laughs> That's all right. No, no. Um, so one of the things as well I just wanted to clarify, when we mentioned that biological sex doesn't appear to make a, a big difference, what about menstrual status? Is that included in that? Yeah, so we haven't done a study on, on, on menstrual cycle, mm-hmm. um, but what we do know is that um, throughout the menstrual cycle, obviously you have a difference in the resting uh, uh, core body temperature. Mm-hmm. So it might, it might be a difference of as much as 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 degrees Celsius, whereas you go from the follicular phase into the luteal phase. Yep. That's your baseline core temperature. So um, uh, from what we do know is that if you keep all of the fundamental principles the same in terms of how much heat you're producing, um, there's no evidence to date that suggests that the change in core temperature and the change in sweating will be different depending on the stage of the menstrual cycle that you're in. Now, the absolute core temperature, and this is true for things like acclimation and fitness and all this type of thing, is that if you've got a difference in the resting absolute core temperature and you've got the same change in core temperature from that baseline value, your absolute core temperature index size will be proportionally different depending on what it is at at baseline. Mm -hmm. So let's say in the follicular phase, my resting core temperature is 36.5 degrees Celsius and my rising core temperature is uh, one degree Celsius, then at the end of exercise, my absolute core temperature will be 37.5. Mm-hmm. If I'm in the luteal phase and my resting core temperature is 37.2 degrees Celsius and my rising core temperature is again one degree Celsius, my absolute core temperature will be 38.2. So you'll see differences when it comes to absolute core temperature, but the best of our knowledge so far is that those changes should be should be the same and the sweat rates will be the same as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, uh, the other thing as well is um, when Alan was talking about, um, I guess, coming up with ways to see if we can um, or have gadgets that estimate um, our sweat rate, um, mm-hmm. there's there's been some athletes that I work with that have got, I don't know what model it is of their Garmin, um, but it's um, suggesting that it can estimate the, the sweat rate. And I'm intrigued because I looked on Garmin to try and find out how the heck are they claiming that they can they can do that and it doesn't like when we've gotten them to do fluid checks that it can be way way out um yeah so what are they are are you aware of that um i'm i'm not um i i I, so i'm not uh i'm not familiar with whatever algorithm that um garmin uses for uh predicting their sweat rates um yeah, so, uh, and it doesn't surprise me to hear that uh, the um, predicted versus observed uh, sweat rates are wildly different. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know what research went into the development of those. Yeah. But, um, you know, uh, obviously there'll be developments in this space, presumably over the coming years. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it sounds like there's um, 
uh, work to be done in terms of improving upon uh, the accuracy of these particular devices. Yeah, yeah. So that's just, I think, a warning out there for, for athletes listening that maybe don't rely on the Garmin. Well, this is it, yeah. I mean, I don't have any, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I, I certainly uh, take your word for it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, I think it's also so true for so many things, isn't it? Is that, um, Steph, is that, you know, we, we are inundated with wearables and mm. data and um you know it's it's still important to to uh, scrutinize the veracity of those data mm -hmm. um just because it's a number doesn't mean that numbers represents reality <laughs> uh in any kind of way i mean i i i always teach my 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 students this when you know, when they're in the lab and um is trying to get people to uh really kind of think critically about the data that you get even from a finely calibrated laboratory device is uh, you should always think about the numbers that you're getting and whether uh, they make sense or whether there's cause for concern. Um, we shouldn't just believe numbers at face value and kind of just get on with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so what are the factors that will influence the um, evaporative requirement for heat balance in the same person? So, um, and therefore alter the sweat weight from one training session um, or race to the next? Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, a few things. So the first thing that people need to think about are the environmental conditions. Mm -hmm. So, um, if it's, if it's hot, so as ambient temperature goes up, um, uh, what, what you'll find is that then, uh, the, the drive for non-evaporative heat loss via convection and radiation that will be diminished. And sometimes, so our skin temperature when we're fully vasodilated is around about 35 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. when, when air temperature goes above that value, what you're actually doing is that we're, we're not, we're, we're now not, not only don't have dry heat loss to the environment, we actually have dry heat gain from the environment. environment. Yeah. So if it's 40 degrees Celsius and my skin temperature is 35 degrees Celsius, I got a five degrees Celsius gradient in the mm. wrong direction. Mm. So airflow is now adding heat to the body in that, mm. in that sense. Also, uh, there's a process called radiation, of course, so thermal radiation, and that's massively influenced by, obviously, the sun. Mm -hmm. So if you've got cloud cover versus um, no cloud cover, that makes a huge difference to the radiative heat gain of the body. Now, that sounds obvious, mm -hmm. but the thing that we need to keep in mind is that that ambient temperature that we get from the weather forecasts or from all of the apps that we have on our phone, it's important to keep in mind that those temperatures are in the shade. Yeah. So, uh, so you could have... A 31 degrees Celsius day. On one day it's overcast, and another day it's clear. And the the rate of 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 um, evaporation required for heat balance is going to be much higher on the day that it's clear, despite the same ambient temperature, because of the changes and differences in cloud cover. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of important to keep in mind. Um, humidity makes a big difference. So if it's more humid, or if it's still. Um, it will reduce the drive for evaporation of sweat from the skin to the environment. That will then impact how much of that sweat um, drips off the body. So I'll go back to that evaporative efficiency uh, mm -hmm. point. Yep. Is that any, anything that happens that causes a reduction in evaporative efficiency, um, that can be problematic. So if it's still and or humid, that, that, that's a, that's, that becomes problematic. So that means that you'll, be, you'll sweat more in those conditions. So those are the four kind of environmental conditions. So we've got air temperature, cloud cover, uh, and time of year, of course, and strength from the sun. Um, you've got wind yep. and uh, and humidity. So those are the kind of five, four environmental parameters that people should be aware of. 
Uh, the other two things are um, the personal parameters. So the rate of metabolic heat production, so the activity. So the activity, uh, so it would be the difference whether you're cycling or running would make a big difference. Um, whether there's any reason to think there's differences in efficiency between day one and day two. Uh, if you're fatigued, for example, you might be, your running economy might go down. Uh, therefore, your rate of metabolic heat production might be higher. Um, uh, and then also clothing. So um, if there's differences in clothing coverage, uh, that might make it might make a, a, a difference as well in terms of um, the barrier to heat loss at the skin surface. The main um, uh, characteristic of clothing that's most important in this case is something called evaporative resistance of clothing. So this is basically how how well that clothing fabric or weave allows sweat to evaporate from the skin underneath the clothing to the surrounding environment, or does it start saturating the clothing itself? and then reducing how much evaporative heat loss you get from that sweat. And I imagine that's something that's uh, had a lot of research in terms of clothing design, particularly in sport and exercise over the last sort of 10 or 20 years in terms of fabrics. Yeah, for sure. So there's a, a great group. So it's actually the group that I did my PhD with uh, 20 years ago now, or almost 20 years ago now, uh, at Loughborough University, which is led by Professor George Havanis. Um, they've done a lot of work in this area, looking at um, sweat rate distribution, how that interacts with different types of clothing, both from uh, you know what you'd wear on your torso down to what you'd wear on your feet, even. Um, and um, they've done some really nice work back about seven or eight years ago now that showed that this idea of the wicking materials that you have of certain uh, clothing. So the idea of wicking material is that enables a drop of sweat to really spread out, and the idea is that it'll then evaporate and keep your skin dry, which is nice from a comfort perspective. But what they've demonstrated is that. The more that the sweat kind of wicks is that you'll get you get the evaporation, but a, a smaller percentage of that evaporative heat loss comes from the body. And therefore, you end up having to sweat more to achieve a given amount of evaporation, which is kind of the opposite of what you want from a wicking material. So um, but that effect is is altered by some other things as well. Um, but that's 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 a pretty important consideration as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what about in terms of how big do you find the variance in sweat rate is if um, you're doing an easy um, session versus a hard session? So, oh, yeah. yeah, I guess like if I was doing a 60 minute easy um, run compared to if that 60 minutes was made up of um, interval um, session. Yeah. So uh, you'll you'll have a big difference, of course owing mainly to the, the rate of metabolic heat production. So um, if you go in kind of a, you know, a, a slow, easy run, like a recovery run or something like that, then um, you know, your, your rate of oxygen consumption will be, will be lower. Yep. And, um, and consequently, the amount of evaporation that you need to balance that heat production will be a lot lower as well. Um, the only thing, the only flip side is that because you're running slower, presumably, then mm -hmm. the self-generated air velocity mm -hmm. might be a little lower, mm -hmm. which might affect the evaporation of evaporative efficiency a little bit. But um, the heat production is the main driver in that particular equation. So, um, um, yeah. I mean, a good way of kind of monitoring it yourself is just thinking about you know, your breathing. And, you know, that's a pretty good in indication of what you're if, if you're familiar with the way your body responds, if your if if your breathing is 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 heavier, um, then you know that probably means that your rate of oxygen consumption is higher, and consequently the amount of evaporation that you'll need will be will be higher as well. Um, so that's a that's that's one way of thinking about it, just from a kind of qualitative perspective, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So 
Um, do you think that there's benefit in athletes estimating the sweat rate, given that there's so many, I don't know, variables impacting on it? Do you, what's the advice, I guess, for, for athletes in terms of, um, yeah, is it worthwhile? Is it useful for them to, to do some of these things where they, they estimate the, their rate? Yeah, I'd say yes and no. Um, you know, there's some, there's some good, there's some good data to show that when people are, are you know, very um, highly motivated uh, in a race situation, for example, is that you know people can have you know uh, winning times in races and they're actually very, very dehydrated. Mm. That said, we also know that dehydration does impact performance mm-hmm. uh, in many different ways. So, um, uh, particularly in a training environment, um, having uh, some kind of um, uh, uh, control over your hydration status is probably wise to make sure that you get the the, the, the maximum out of a given training session. So I think, you know, mon- monitoring, there's a couple of, couple of ways you can do it. You, you can look out for the latest developments in, in wearable technology, for example. Like the Garmin. <laughs> but you, need, you need to make sure that they're accurate. Um, that's the first thing. Um, and then the other way of doing it is, you know, if, if you is investing in a, a good set of, of digital, yes. accurate bathroom scales mm-hmm. and, and thinking about and, and just becoming familiar with with how much you sweat. And you could even, you know, if you keep a, if you keep a log of it, you could actually measure how much you sweat, accounting for sweat that's caught in your clothes and also accounting for any water that you ingest, of course, while you're mm-hmm. on your own. Um, you can get a pretty good feel for how much sweat rate or how much sweat you lose, mm. um, and then consequently, um, how much you need to either rehydrate with, or how much you want to maybe, maybe take with you to to, to uh, drink while on your run, if that's what you you, you want to do. Uh, but if you keep a log and you keep an idea, uh, keep keep track of you know maybe what kind of intensity run you 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 uh, were doing, uh, what you were wearing, what the weather conditions were, you could probably come up with a pretty decent um, kind of matrix of uh, of of data that enable you to get a good handle of the type of sweat rates that you'll be um, uh, generating and consequently how how much you need to drink to avoid levels of dehydration that are problematic. So we know that the body can tolerate quite easily at least, you know, 0.5%, maybe even a 1% change reduction in total body mass Mm -hmm. uh, without too much ill effect. Then when you're kind of getting into the 2%, that's when it starts becoming more impactful yeah. uh, we talked about this actually in the the previous episode 3a with uh, dr lewis james from from yeah, yeah, um, you, yeah. And, and the fact that you know you as just as you said ollie like when you're doing a, a sweat rate uh assessment you know you can do that one-off but a one-off's not going to help you that much because conditions change so much from day to day you sort of need to know you know at race pace at easy pace uh, at seven o'clock in the morning when it's cool at the middle of the day when the sun's shining and it's 30 degrees like that's all going to vary and you know we talked about the fact for you know Ironman and things like that you know you get all that variance even within a single day's racing Um, and so you need to sort of have an idea of what the the likely range of sweat rates is going to be across that entire day rather than just saying I'm going to go out at 10 o'clock in the morning and measure it and my number is 800 mils an hour because it's probably not at the start and it's not at the end and it might be in the middle. That's right, yeah. I mean, and, you know, that's an interesting uh, point that you raise, like a, a scenario where you do have, you know, prolonged activity 
and changing or variable environmental conditions or, and, and other conditions as well. Um, because of, you know, in terms of uh, mode of activity and things like that, it's under those circumstances where some kind of live um, uh, calculation of how much you need to drink as you go along would actually be very beneficial, I would think. Mm -hmm. um, so I should um, connect you with Garmin and, and fix up their algorithm. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All yeah. right. Wow. Uh, a lot of information there, um, which is awesome and, yeah, super interesting. Um, also, what I found really fascinating, Alan, was um, just about the work that Ollie's doing with uh, the developing countries uh, with the, the water. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, fascinating. Uh, but can we perhaps just give some key take-home messages uh, for the listeners? Yeah, you're right, Steph. Obviously, we covered a lot of um, pretty complex physiological topics in here, a lot of terminology that people are probably unfamiliar with. Uh, but I guess if we think about the, the question of the episode, you know, why does one person sweat so much more than another person? I guess it all comes down to um, that simple physiological concept of heat balance yep. and uh, trying to maintain a, a constant body temperature and the amount of sweat you produce is the amount of sweat that's required to try and maintain that constant body temperature. Yeah. Um, and there's obviously different factors that go into that in terms of the amount of heat that your body's generating, which is basically how many calories you're burning or the, the heat that's being produced. And then you've got um, how well that um, sweat, when you do sweat, is being evaporated off the body. And it's obviously the evaporation that's the important thing, not the amount of sweat being produced. Yeah. So essentially, if the sweat's not evaporating very well because of clothing or because of the humidity or because it's a still day, uh, then your body will produce more and more sweat to try and get that evaporation to where it needs to be to maintain a constant body temperature. Yeah. Now, one of the questions actually, um, I completely forgot to ask Ollie during the podcast. I was kicking myself afterwards that I forgot to ask him, but I, I went back and emailed him about this and he replied to me this week was around why is it that our body temperature goes up at the start of exercise if the whole purpose of this heat balance theory is to maintain a stable body temperature. Why doesn't it maintain just the normal resting body temperature? Um, but it always goes up before it achieves uh, a stable rate. Uh, and Ollie said that uh, we don't know 100% for sure why this happens. Uh, there's a few theories around this. Um, but one that, that makes sense certainly to him is the fact that if you were to maintain a normal resting body temperature during exercise, it means you would have to sweat much earlier and much more profusely to maintain that lower body temperature. You're going to have to evaporate off more and get rid of more heat to maintain a lower um, stable body temperature during exercise. Yeah. So from that point of view, uh, evolutionarily, it makes sense to um, run a slightly higher body temperature because you don't have to sweat as much and you're conserving mm. water then from a, a dehydration point of view, which from an evolutionary point of view is going to be really important. And obviously there's no uh, particular downside to running a slightly higher body temperature as long as it's not too high for too long. Um, so that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, the other thing that I thought of is potentially around uh, muscle temperature as well, because we know uh, muscles like to be at a slightly higher temperature than resting to be optimal yeah. in terms of the way they contract at work. And if you think about it, you know, 
pretty much all of us, if we're going to do high-intensity efforts, are going to go out and do a warm-up first. And that whole point of the warm-up is to increase the temperature in the body and particularly in the muscles. So the fact that the body is... Um, happy and, and willing to maintain a slightly higher body temperature compared to rest makes perfect sense as well. So from a practical perspective, yes, physiologists can uh, predict with a fair bit of accuracy what you might expect someone's sweat rate to be under particular conditions. But because there is so much variability in terms of the clothing that people wear on that particular day, um, the temperature, the humidity, the airflow, so even on a bike, you know, if you're going up a hill at maybe only 20 kilometres an hour, you're getting a lot less airflow than you would if you're going down the other side of the hill at 70 or 80 kilometres an hour. So the course is going to be relevant there as well. Um, there's so many different factors in there that just vary so much from one day to the next that trying to calculate uh, with any accuracy uh, your sweat rate under real-world conditions as opposed to a, you know, a standardised lab environment is going to be um, you know, pretty next to impossible. So from that perspective, really, the only way you're going to know is to do that fluid balance assessment of weighing yourself before and after the session uh, and then taking into account the fact that you may gain some weight if you eat and drink and lose some weight if you uh, have a toilet stop along the way. Uh, and I think we might put up on social media uh, a quick little instructional on um, how to put all that together and, and do those calculations if you're not familiar with them. Uh, and then finally, just remembering that you know do, conditions do vary from, from day to day uh, and even within the same day, day for longer events. So you really need to have uh, a bit of a, a picture of your sweat rate in all these different conditions rather than just measuring it as a, a one-off and saying that's my number. Um, you know, if you run in multiple events, you might do half marathon, marathon, and then maybe occasionally ultra events as well. Uh, obviously, the pace is different. Therefore, the rate of heat production is different. Therefore, the sweat rate will be different across those different events. And so you need to be able to know what your likely sweat rate is at each of those different distances if you want to find that out. Uh, it's not going to be the same in, in each one. And obviously, you know, we said before things like uh, ultra marathons or Ironman and things like that, you know, the, the temperature is going to vary a lot from the start to the finish of the race. So having an idea of what the sweat rate is in those cooler conditions at the start of the day and the hotter conditions at the end of the day is going to be really important to understand what your likely fluid needs will be across that day in the event that you're doing. And um, don't, don't, for now, don't listen to your Garmin watch. <laughs> or others or like suss it out like one of my athletes did um where they were telling me oh Steph did you know that you know Garmin's got this thing where it can work out your sweat rate and I'm like really and you know went to look it up and I was mm -mm. so I got him to um do that exact um thing there where you know let's have a look at what we're doing in um various sessions and um environments and like way off yeah. um there might have been a luck chance that one time it, it was close so yeah and yeah. my guess is that they're using that sort of algorithm that ollie talked about in terms of heat that heat balance equation and, and trying mm. to work out what the the rate of metabolic heat production is like the the work rate that you're doing whether it's running or riding um, and they're using yeah. that to calculate the heat gain and therefore the heat transfer but as ollie said you know there's that evaporation efficiency depending on wind mm. speed humidity clothing all of those factors uh, will influence how effectively that sweat is evaporated um, and so 
you know, very difficult to put, you know, you don't punch into your garment today's wind speed, the humidity, whether you're wearing a bike helmet or not, how much clothing you're wearing and what fabric it is and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think it's going to be very difficult to um, get an algorithm that's going to work that out perfectly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Right on. Yeah. So many of you might be wondering what happened to the bonus round. Uh, you're all looking forward to that at the end of the episode. We didn't have it today. And the reason for that is actually because uh, Ollie was very generous with his time. We spoke about sweating uh, in this first part, but we actually recorded a whole other episode with him around the heat and exercising in hot environments beyond just the sweating side of things. So we'll have that episode for you next week. So we're going to go from 4A straight to 5A, and then we've got an athlete guest in 5B who's going to cover off both of those topics uh, for us in 5B. Um, but we spoke to Ollie about this because he's been involved not only in research in thermoregulation, but he's involved in policy development and implementation. So he's worked with Cricket Australia, for example, to create their heat policy, yeah. uh, and that has things in it around you know when um, play has to be stopped or um, had extra drinks breaks and that kind of thing because of extreme heat, um, playing cricket obviously in the summer. He's also been involved um, with the uh, Australian Tennis Open every year, so uh, his team set up a whole bunch of weather stations on, on a whole bunch of courts, uh, and then they have the policy that they enact based on that data around when to close the roof on the main courts and when to suspend play on the outer courts as well. Um, and he's also just recently been the main author on a new heat policy for Sports Medicine Australia that works across a whole range of sports. So he'll talk about that in that episode as well. Um, and obviously a relevant one for any sport that's involved in exercise in a, a hot environment, which obviously, you know, for all of us exercising here in the Australian summer at the moment, doing running, cycling or, or multi-sport events is going to be really relevant for, for everyone. Mm, yeah. Yep. Uh, so... In terms of if you've got any questions that, you know, we haven't answered or you'd like us to answer, uh, you can uh, follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook at The Long Munch. And also feel free and we'd love to have you to subscribe to our podcast. Where can they subscribe again? Yeah, any of the podcasting platforms that you're listening to this right now if if you uh use any of those regularly and you can hit the subscribe button and get notified when new episodes come um you can obviously um you know whichever podcast platform you're on some of them have ratings so we'd love if you can drop us a, a quick little rating on there that helps um disseminate the podcast and and get it seen more in, in search engines and things and that helps you know get more people in in touch with us and and you know grow the community that can share this this knowledge um from our fantastic guests Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, uh, over and out for now. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see everyone. We'll talk to everyone next week. We'll see you then. Awesome.